Greetings, dysfunctionals. Today is another episode of The Reality Dysfunction. I am your host, Ernesto Morales, and today we will be talking with a rising star in the Chicanx movement. Adriana Abundis is a culturally relevant pedagogue, master teacher, community art organizer, and muralist. Her art and collaborative projects are rooted in civic engagement, community empowerment, and extending the platform of Chicanx narratives. Ms. Abundis is an SAISD distinguished middle school math teacher, school leader, and master's secondary mathematics graduate, and is currently enrolled in a second master's program in bilingual bicultural studies. She has led and created three inspirational murals on the west side of San Antonio that stretch over 3,000 square feet and continues to create artistic symbols of indigeneity, identity, and pride with her art network, Arte de Loche. Adriana has been able to bring community cultural wealth into the classrooms and continues to promote student self-expression, advocacy, and agency. She has led keynote addresses across the country that highlight teaching strategies, art techniques, and cultural awareness. Her inspiration is cemented in the love for her family and community. All right, let's get down to it. Adriana, it's good to see you again. Tell me what part of Aslan do you originally come from? Ooh, um, great to see you as well. Uh, the part of Aslan that I come from, I always share with people is wherever my mother was, um, I respect my mother greatly. My mother comes from the Southwest region of the Americas. My mother is from San Luis Potosí, Mexico. And my father is from Isla Huacán, Jalisco. Both of them traveled north uh, towards Los Angeles. And I was born in a city named Artesia, California, um, and grew up in Los Angeles for 18 years. Okay. From the Middle Aslan, Califa Aslan. There you go. <laughs> so what are you doing in San Antonio right now? So currently, this is my eighth year in the city of San Antonio, and I'm doing several things, both personally, spiritually, academically, professionally. I'm really enjoying the uh, Chicano, Chicana platforms here, some of the opportunities that we have to really transform the educational pipeline for our indigenous brown students and um, really understanding the variety and the beauty in our culture. You know, coming from Los Angeles, California, um, and, and to Texas via Michigan, I've had the opportunity to meet several different uh, folks from the spectrum of, of what it means to be a, a Chicano. So um, uh, I'm learning a lot about the folks down here, a lot of the history that they have contributed to, and really analyzing and looking for my role um, both in the movement and um, just personally, you know, I feel like I've grown up a lot and it, and it all has to do with my, uh, with education and my um, relationship with it. So you, you've been there eight years now? Yes, I'm starting my eighth year in the classroom. Wow. That's, yeah. Uh, that's intense. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're, a, you're a seasoned educator now. Yes, they consider us as such, uh, you know, the teaching profession, it's increasingly getting more and more uh, turnover. Uh, folks are said to teach for two years and then leave the profession because of the, um, because of the stress, because of the uh, responsibilities. Um, however, I have found a, a beautiful pocket of the city and have just really committed myself to 
to San Antonio and it's because it's uh, it embraces Chicano culture. And the thing about the city is that they don't even know it. You know, they feel that it's so ingrained in their cult in the uh, city and the local culture that just now are we starting to really dig into history text and really looking to what like what some of the most popular streets in our community are and their relationship to us as strong and resilient Chicano people. Um, we have students here who frequent the Alamo and other very oppressive sites. Um, and now we're finally uncovering the, the true history and the realities that um, that we're facing. So it's, it's a really exciting time. It's, it's a time of transformation in the city and it's made it really difficult to leave. I feel like every moment I wake up, I'm, I'm engaged in research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. San Antonio is an exciting place. Um, okay. So you got there through uh, Teach for America. Um, oh yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about that experience? Sure. So it's interesting, but uh, because at the onset of my career, I tried to hide that. That's something that I wasn't as open sharing with people because of the true narrative that that follows Teach for America, right? That it focuses on white middle class Ivy League uh, folks that you know aren't in it for. Uh, let's say not the same reasons as a person of color from a working class community would, would do so. So um, I, you know, it really starts for me being young. I I grew up the oldest of four. Uh, My family were a part of the working class. They had alternating shifts and they did not want to take me to school. And, um, and it was simply because of their physical fatigue. Um, And I got myself to to college. And it wasn't until there that I realized that there weren't enough people that looked like me. I was in college classes where we learned about economics and uh, 500 students. And I was the only one with with my skin tone, with my accent, um, with my reality. And it really made me focus on on why and and, and realize why that was. And at that time, I had my my, uh, sister, in California whose guidance counselor told her her senior year to drop out because she was missing um, an English credit and there was no way that she would be able to graduate, which she did. Um, But that really motivated me to start looking at education in a different light, in one that required people that look like us to really, honestly, to really grab us by the hand and and show us where we need to be. Uh, Like Dr. Yoso uh, calls, you know, what she calls navigational capital right? We need people and systems to help us get there as well. And I was two years into the program, already in debt. Um, When I say program, I mean Michigan State University and the College of Communications. And I knew while my heart wanted to be an educator, my pocket couldn't it couldn't handle that. Um, and at that time, because it was a large uh, campus, large university, Teach for America was heavily recruiting brown people and um, at the onset, you know, they offered trips, they offered opportunities to observe classrooms, and I took each opportunity that I could, and ultimately I ended up applying for the program because I saw it as my golden ticket uh, and my only opportunity at that time to, to make it into the education system. So for that, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that I was able to be accepted and, uh, and placed in San Antonio, but um, my experiences with the program, you know, they're, they're conflictual, you know, it's like you appreciate where you come from, but you know, the more you learn about them, the more you're against them. And um, I used to be embarrassed about telling folks that I was from Teach for America because a lot of the schools here uh, who get, you know, who um, 
allocate Teach for America teachers um, are our schools with the most need, our schools who need veteran teachers who, you know, because once you get into education, you know really that it's a mixture of abiding by state standards. You know, how do we get the kids to pass these tests that are super um, not just stressful, but they, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of our community's future relies on these test scores and like the opportunities that that our communities are given. So knowing how to like knowing how to infiltrate that system, um, but also like having corazón and knowing that we're not here to to save anyone, right? We're here to give pieces of ourselves and to develop community with our own capitals and slowly and surely, or rather slowly but surely, I was able to connect with other Latinx, Chicano folks uh, in Teach for America. And I, I felt, you know, I felt a little better. Um, there's still some mindsets that still linger. Um, there's still, you know, like an essence of, of bootstrapist and grit and meritocracy that I think still falls under the Teach for America umbrella. Um, but we get radicals, we get down people. And I'll tell you this, the ones that I've met are brown yeah. and they are able to recognize their indigeneity. And they're not afraid to say it and they don't feel wrong because for so long we have felt like we were not native, that we were simply other, that we are not from this country. Uh, so um, I feel proud now to be a Teach for America teacher that, that remained um, uh, in her community, but I know it's because I'm Mexican American and I come from the working class. Yeah. You know, it's because I, I, I know my students aren't me, but I know it's a reflection of the communities that uh, myself and my past generations have been a part of. So you're able to make that connection. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, San Antonio is very like like all cities. Right. It's very uh, economically and racially segregated. Mm -hmm. And um, when I wanted to be a teacher, I was very specific in wanting to teach Mexican-American youth because I was inspired by Chicano studies in college. Like it completely turned my life around. It gave me reason to live. You know, it gave me reason to not give up. And I wanted to include that in whatever subject I would be placed in. In fact, I remember I got hired, first principal I ever talked to, first interview I ever had, and they asked me, I had an option, do you want to teach history or do you want to teach math? And at the time, I'm like, yo, history, right? Like, that's, that's my opportunity to teach Chicano studies. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I felt a sense of responsibility. Um, I felt that mathematics was really where our people needed to get more love and support, you know, considering, and I know you know this, just like our, our, our historical attributes as a community, as a people in the field of mathematics, knowing that it's a gateway to college, um, and college isn't everything, right? It isn't something we should necessarily promote as the end-all, be-all, but it changed my life. And it changed the life of many people that I know because it, it, it did offer an alternative um, view or uh, understanding of our country and yeah. of our world. So I chose math yeah. and I said, uh, well, you know what? I'll teach math and I'll incorporate different historical contexts, different um, sort of aspirational capital, because I really think like if, if I think the kids are going to like me uh, because I'm positive and, I, and I, I'm true to who I am, I got to use that power to teach math. So I've heard you say two things, uh, mm. use two phrases in, in our conversation so far. And I was just wondering if you could kind of give me a quick, uh thing on them you just said aspirational capital yes you said, you said navigational capital a second mm -hmm. ago and mm -hmm. i was wondering if you could just kind of talk about those a little bit and maybe you know uh expand a little bit more on how those things are um well not how those things well expand a little bit more sure so 
contextually, so in education, we tend to view our students with a very deficit mindset, right? With a very deficit framework. Oh, they don't speak the mainstream language. They have a problem. Oh, they're, they haven't passed their math standardized test. Uh, they might, they must not be good at mathematics. So when we look at different forms of capital, and I want to, I want to, uh, preface this by saying a lot of the language that I'm going to use is very tied to capitalism and that's something that I'm trying to uh, uh, abandon but I also you know like want to respect the research but you're going to hear a lot of like capitalistic terms and, and language right now um, so in efforts to like really value and affirm our communities and the beauty the knowledge that they bring the uh, knowledge and learning that they bring we wanted to really look at it from an asset-based perspective and I did some research back at, at Michigan State actually with Dr. Estrella Torres she helped me get into a Ronald E. McNair program and there we studied culturally relevant pedagogy and one of the first articles that I read was about community cultural wealth by Dr. Tarayoso and when thinking about asset-based thinking, she was able to categorize these different assets and strengths in the community into, I think it was like between five and seven different forms of wealth or capital, right? When we think of wealth and capital, we think of money. She's abandoning that and she's saying, no, wealth and capital are things that we have that are resources that can be used as leverage, that can be used to build our communities. And one of these is like linguistic capital, right? Like how many languages do you speak? Whether it's Spanish, English, French, Spanglish, Galo, right? Any, any language is valuable. Um, uh, we also have social capital, resistant capital. So I spoke about aspirational and navigational capital. So many times because the number of Lat um, Latinos and Latinas and, you know, specifically Chicanos and Chicanas, uh, the graduation rates aren't where we know that they should be right so we begin to blame parents and say oh they must not value education oh this might must not be something that's important to them but when we dig deeper and look at the aspirational capital of our communities they want they want education they are overcoming barriers so when we think about aspirational capital it's people who or rather it's it's opportunities where uh people believe in this themselves, are, are, are down for resiliency, are willing to vocalize the fact that they do deserve more, which in and of itself is, is a big deal. You know, I grew up with people who believe that they didn't deserve more, who were okay, you know, with yeah. mediocrity, if, if you will. Um, yeah. but, and, and, you know, because our kids are silenced a lot, we start to begin to think that they have no aspirations. You know, that they don't want better for themselves because they don't vocalize it in the way that we expect it to, to be shared. Um, but by digging deep, you know, by going into communities, by conducting home visits, oral history reports, we can recognize that we have a lot of aspiration. And that is, and that is a strength in our community um, that lends itself to, to resiliency, right? And navigational capital is when communities have folks that have navigated different institutions um, and have been successful in those institutions. So for example, when I started at Michigan State University, I had no idea how to navigate um, the financial aid department, right? Like I ended up meeting everyone there, um, and just as I'm sure as my, my, my classmates did as well um, for my Chicano Studies program, but um, I had to learn. I had no navigational capital. 
And honestly, I've been in situations where I can recognize that I'm the exception in many ways. And, and we want to make this the rule, right? That we know how to navigate through those systems. So when we have people in our family who graduated already or uh, from high school, from college, who you know, have a job somewhere, um, it really opens up our opportunities to, to do it as well, right? It's kind of like, um, it's who you know, right? Like very, very white, like it's, it's who you know to get you up here. Well, well we got to know people too, right? So it's creating sort of that chain to get people into the program and like telling them, you know, which door to knock on, uh, what papers to fill out, things like that. Yeah, no, that, that totally, that totally makes sense. I, this whole idea of aspirational capital, I, mm -hmm. I really, I really like that. I'm feeling that. Awesome. I, I think is that also too, I mean, how do you connect that with the work that you're doing with the murals and the culturally relevant curriculum? I mean, because it's, mm. it's good to be able to say, you know, you've got to aspire to something, but I mean, there, there always seems to be something missing in terms of like, there's a, a this idea, I think in a lot of young uh, brothers and sisters that there, there's just, um, there's a void in terms of like, what they know about their history and you know what they know about their community and all of that and I, and I really feel like and I'm just wondering what you think about this I really feel like that that void um, uh, limits aspirations mm. um, I understand um, and I agree. I think it happens to a lot of our folks, especially when you think of like substance abuse and like mm -hmm. different um, like historical and generational trauma that, that you know that really traps us um but i think of something that i heard uh the amazing playwright luis Aldez say he said that out of the emptiness in my heart i was able to birth creativity so i actually see that like emptiness as a really good opportunity and platform to allow someone to know that you know we believe in them you know it's not that it's that our parents are busy, you know, they, they, a lot of them are a part of the working class. They want to have conversations with their kids. They want to inspire them and motivate them. But sometimes it becomes difficult because of the, the lack of relational time that we have with them, right? And as teachers, we get a lot of time with our kids, right? They're with us 25% of the day, um, or rather, no, I'm sorry. There was this 33% of the day. So it's, it's a great amount of time. Um, so the teacher in me wants to say this, um, Aspirational capital is all about high expectations, right? Which seems really basic and obvious, but because of folks' biases, right? Because of the uh, self-fulfilling prophecies and things like that, right? Because of those, everyone falls into the traps down here. And whenever we work in like Title I schools, schools that um, receive certain federal uh, funding because of uh, levels of uh, like poverty and, 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 and things like that, um, I think because of that, like teachers and folks and, and, and students themselves, they've developed low expectations of what they're able to accomplish. And then when we intersect that with like the standardized testing environment, like as long as I can pass this test and I am intelligent, I'm okay, I'm good. And we don't allow them to see their intelligence manifest in different creative ways. And, you know, I also think about goal setting. And when you think about goal, it's not like, hey, everybody, here's a goal, right? It's not about being explicit about these goals. It's about finding organic and authentic ways to get kids involved in a project, to get kids involved in long-term um, uh, experiences. And really for a lot of our students, and even 
even us, we don't realize what we have until like the end, right? Until it's already passed. Until we have that opportunity to engage in deep reflection. So it's about like stay, staying persistent um, with our youth. And, um, you know, I think also like, it's our, it's our job as teachers to provide resources for these kids. And like, if our schools don't have it, we have to reach out. And that's, you know, another form of navigation on social capital. Um, but yeah, I would argue that when you have a hole and emptiness, that makes you want it more. Nice. All right. That's a great, that's a great quote. That's a, that's a beautiful way to, oh, and to he, think about that. Yeah. I might take, I would definitely take that from this conversation. Cool. So tell us about the murals. I mean, because it seems yeah. like this is kind of a, a natural segue into that, like you just said, finding uh, organic and authentic ways to get kids uh, involved in, in long-term projects. Yeah. So what's, what's great about these projects is like, it connects just, it connects like my soul, that of the communities and that of like just the greater, greater society. So um, I want to just, I want to start with, hmm. Well, to start with when I came to San Antonio. So I came to San Antonio, a couple of Teach for America folks were driving me around and I recognized it on the West side, which is where uh, it's heavily populated by, yeah, it's on me, Mexican-American um, students, communities, whether they've been here for, you know, several generations or they've just traveled up North. Um, we have, you know, it's, this is the Mexican-American, Mexican side of town, right. which I love. Um, and there's murals here, you know, which is, um, a, a cool connection to our Chicano uh, descent, right? And as we approached the school that I would be working at on the west side, I noticed there were no murals there. And it was really a contrast from a school that was about two, one and a half, two miles away. Um, so as we drove up to the school, I see this great big wall with so much potential that's like chipping away, that's really dirty, that's been tagged several times, that's got like that same gray cement prison, you know, sort of color, and it's facing um, apartment complexes and it's facing um, different homes that um, different homes, and it's literally something that our students see every day when they walk to, to school. So my first year, I remember this like really bubbly white TFA teachers like, we should do a mural. And I'm like, yeah, you know, that's a good idea. Uh, and she went up to the principal, you know, and she said it. So it wasn't necessarily just like an idea that I had. I think it's an idea that every single teacher has had when they go to that school. Right. Um, but no one ever did it, right? right? No one ever like really put in the work. Um, so as I started getting really deep into math, I felt that it wasn't um, – it wasn't fulfilling its, its purpose as like a very cultural and spiritual indigenous practice. It was very colonized. It was very westernized. So I was very quickly um, compelled to create a curriculum that, so I'll say this first, to get money and, and like resources and like respect and opportunities, we have to connect everything through like the mainstream, right? So like, how can I infiltrate this mainstream? So that's when I started digging into like the standards. And I wrote down what I knew it took to create murals. I researched the, what it took to create murals and I associated it to every single standard that students were to learn in the seventh grade. We created a grant based off of the work and got a $20,000 grant from the city of San Antonio to create a mural there on our community. Our school is one of the oldest schools in the district. It's been here since the 1970s and it's always had that, that wall, right? So they said, let's do it. Let's get the $20,000. Um, so the, uh, 
at the onset, it's totally community-based. So we all met in the classroom. Uh, we met into groups. We, we had different discussions and reflections about what it meant to have this room in the community, what we wanted the messages to be around. And the students, the families, the um, folks that you know, were frequent to the area, they created the images that, that, or rather the thoughts and the ideas and the imagery of the murals. And then because we had so much money, we we're like, hey, I want to get the dopest artist in San Antonio. Because again, San Antonio is adorned in murals. Like it's, there's over 50 in just like in, in this little pocket on the west side. And, you know, I was already thinking of really cool males in the game, right, who, were, who I already had seen. Um, and then when I got into the meeting with sort of the, the folks that were helping me organize, they said, well, hey, don't you paint? Don't you yeah. draw? And I'm like, Right. I, I, so at the time I had drawn, I had painted like one, one project with them that was a 10 foot by 10 foot mural. And I said, yeah, but I want this to be amazing. Like I want someone who can paint to come and do this. Let's pay them some money to do it. They're like, no, no, let's get you to do it. Come on. You can do it. Just, just try it. And as much as I wanted to say, no, I felt, why not? You know, these people believe in me. I'm already going to be with the kids every day. I have the relationship with them. It'll be a great opportunity. So um, I took the role and it just really changed my life, right? It affirmed myself as an artist and I was able to take that positivity and that love and share it with my students because the emotions of a teacher have such a tremendous opportunity to dictate the emotions of, of students. It's ridiculous, you know? We come in stressful, poor kids, they're gonna be stressful as well. So when we think about like teachers feeling um, like, like they have efficacy, like it's really important. So after that, uh, we drew out the image, we created it to a scale. It took nine months to create it when we finally put it up. So we did it on polytab canvas. So we didn't directly paint it on the mural. And because we did it on canvas, we had to go out and we, we measured by hand every single square inch of that 2,500 square feet. And we had to make sure that our calculations were precise because when it was time to place that canvas on those walls, if they didn't fit, like we didn't have time to go back and, and fix it because it was such a large scale. And at the end of the nine months, when we you know, put everything in, it just felt like this sacred intuitive mathematics that we had in our soul all along. And um, we had over 200 community members come out and support because the process took nine months. It wasn't something that was, you know, was done lightly. It wasn't something that took um, effortless work. It was, it was hard. And contrary to Western thought, like it wasn't something for one person to do, for one leader to do. We, we did it together. We all were leaders. We had so much support. Um, but some of the highlights, we were able to pay five high school students who are from the area to come and paint with us. Um, we were able to involve several students. And, you know, one of the cool things was that students from the middle school were not able to paint unless they came to tutoring the day before, which, you know, I hate forcing kids to do stuff and I don't think we forced them, but I think they were able better to see the relationship between mathematics and muralism. So now when they went down their block and they saw murals, it wasn't like, oh, who tagged that? Uh, who went up there and, and painted that? It was like, oh, look at the mathematics involved. What does that message we speak to? And a lot of the murals in San Antonio do promote indigenous identity, which is very powerful and, and very exciting. Um, but on the west side of San Antonio, we have a lot of generational South Texans who um, I have observed sort of have forgotten their ties to indigenous. Well, rather, I wouldn't say forgot. I don't think they were able really explicitly taught it in the education right. system. So it was a great opportunity. And you know what's interesting is we had our, our lead artist who 
ended up going to a university down here after maybe two years, no, the year after the mural was created and she started a Chicano studies class. And even though we, you know, we discussed things very informally, the imagery, the storyline was very representative of, of Chicano history. Obviously it didn't include everything. So it wasn't until really she took that class. Well, let me, let me, let me say this differently. When she took that class, she was able to add another layer onto that experience that I think really transformed her time in college. For her to sit into classes where the professor's like, oh, murals uh, uh, represent, um, have the opportunity to uplift communities. They have the opportunity to share messages of dissent. She lived it, right? She got to experience that. And for all the other you know, 200 kids that were a part of the process, um, they're not quite yet at college, uh, but when they are, I can't wait for that moment of discovery where they see their role in the Chicano movement here in San Antonio. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, wow. it was really cool. That's, a, that's an incredible story, Adriana. That's, I mean, oh, that's, thank you. No, that's, that's really good work. I mean, wow. I mean, even just right in the beginning, taking the, um, the idea of the mural and, you know, having sort of an idea of what you want to do with it but making sure that it conforms to every one of those standards um, mm -hmm. in the proposal, I think is just, I think it's brilliant. It's, it's a good way to go, yeah. Yeah, I wanna describe sort of what the mural was. Um, so our kids begin to develop this mindset that we're not good at learning, right? And, mm -hmm. and we hear Dr. Jeff Duncan Andrade say that, you know, there's a difference between schooling and learning, right? And it's our children's uh, conflict with schooling and not necessarily the learning. So how do we share that learning is something that's been a part of our community since our inception? That learning isn't necessarily passing these tests and being this obedient scholar, right? That learning is something that we do when we speak to each other. When our grandmother tells us, hey, come over here, I have a story to share with you, or hey, come help me um, make this, make these tamales, right? Like that's also learning. So the mural was split into two um, that actually were mirrors of each other. So on one side, we had our indigenous, um, uh, our indigenous Mexica Mayan. It was a mix, um, predominantly uh, Mexica though, uh, like self, you know, an ex ex discovery of astrology, different moments of danza and music, storytelling. And then it was mirrored by our current West Side San Antonio hood, we called it. So here we had astrology and folks navigating mathematics. Here we had like NASA and people wearing suits with Mexican-American patches, you know, mm. here we had the Aztec ball game that we played, you know, with our hips and in our shoulders that we try to get into the, the hoop that's very representative of basketball, right? And on the other side, we had like a basketball court. So we wanted to show people that who we were then or rather who we are now is exactly who we were then. And it's something that we need to recognize and, and root ourselves in, especially since um, we just continue to be othered, right? We continue to... Uh, be made felt like we're, we're foreigners on our own land. So yeah. for kids to know and to recognize that nothing has changed, it maybe has put on a different face or maybe they've made us put a suit on instead of our traje, but we're still learning in the same capacities. Yeah. So it's called always learning. It was dope. The mural's called always learning? It's called always learning. Siempre oh, aprendiendo. I like, I like that. Yeah, that's yeah. good. Do you have a mural project right now? I have an idea for one. Yeah. So um, the school that I'll be going to uh, is named Lanier High School. And Lanier High School was one of the first schools that engaged in the ideation of walkouts, right? So being from LA, I always thought we started the walkouts, right? I'm like, yo, LA, walkout, movies, all that. But, you know, they originated here. 
So I'll be going to a school that in 1968, um, and rather like the decades before that, it was a vocational school for Mexican-Americans, still in the same side of town, where they taught students how to sew, how to fix automobiles, uh, how to work in agriculture, which are so important, right? Yeah. But to but to limit um, a student's uh, opportunities to that at the public school level are very detrimental. And for many years, no one did anything, right? That's just the way things are. We, we, we see that rhetoric a lot. But in 1968, you know, following and during the civil rights movement, Mexican-Americans were not allowed to take algebra classes. They said that they were way too high and that students would never pass. They're also not allowed to speak Spanish, right? Which is, it's happened everywhere and it still happens now. So in 1968, they threatened to walk out um, and they never had to. So their demands were met by 1968, by the, the date of the walkout. But to know that they were a part of that conversation and to know that they were that down and to read about like actual students from those schools who are now elders in our community really inspired me to do a mural about the walkouts there at that school, to do a mural that shows sort of the, uh, the, concern, the concerns about the inceptions of the school and where we are now and how, how powerful and profound and transformational what we're doing is. And I say that because my role next year is to teach algebra, which was not taught in 1968 or rather 67, and to teach it in Spanish. I'm teaching algebra in a dual language context. So I'm teaching Spanish and, and, and math at the same time, right? We're not speaking English in that course. So to know that like we're doing this is such a big deal. Like this is the same, th these are the two markers that they said would never allow us to succeed. So I have two goals. One, we're gonna get 100% on that damn algebra math test. I know we are. Um, and that's because I have a faith in, in, in my students. Um, and also um, the fact that we're speaking Spanish, right? That's, that's monumental. So I wanna create, help the community create and, and, and work towards organizing a mural that really shows that, that shows our linguistic capital, that shows our navigational capital, our aspirational capital, our resistant capital, that's gonna be focused on this idea of walkouts and this idea of like, you thought we couldn't do it and now we're excelling, you know, where else are we going from here? So that's, that's the next one. Um, that's gonna start uh, August. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that one. Now it's just going to be bigger and better because all of us have more experience now. Wow. Okay. You know, what's interesting also is that San Antonio, they are having, and you should come, they're going to have a, a walkouts conference in November um, about the Chicano walkouts. I, I saw that. I was actually thinking about coming to that. Hey, and yeah. I have a duplex, so I have an extra yeah. room if all you right. and Jess or your crew want to come. All right. Adriana, this is amazing. I, the, I'm excited. Um, this mural about Lanier High School, that's incredible. Yeah. You know, I would say from an organizing standpoint that the walkouts in San Antonio were probably a lot more successful than the ones in LA. Ooh. Well, because the people in San Antonio got what they were asking for. Oh, I'll tell you. The people in LA didn't really get what they were asking for. And they had to walk out. Yeah. I mean, you know. You know yeah, you know, people always tell me, damn, you're from LA, why are you here? Like, I wanna go over there, you know? And, and, and I love that city, it's, it's my roots, it's my people. But I feel like um, in terms of like Mexican-American adoration and adornment, like I see it here more. Like it's in California, but um, I just see a lot more mainstream, um, mainstream like uh, obligation 
location. Just like, yeah, San Antonio is where it's at. There's like a sense of res resistance with the folks here and this like sense of like true historical, um, like rootedness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, cool. we're, we're closing in on our time. But okay. I wanna, I wanna ask you um, to tell me a little bit about the uh, movement for Mexican-American studies in San Antonio, um, public school system uh you know what is what does that look like right now mm -hmm. really interested mm -hmm. in the role that you know that you're playing in it while you're there mm -hmm. and um you know i'm also really interested in in hearing how you think you know yourself as a young educator how you think that um the uh, drive that's happening across the country for ethnic studies in particular um is going to uh, shape the future of k-12 Great question. So I believe that at the root of ethnic studies and Mexican American studies, we do have culturally relevant pedagogy, right? And it's an opportunity for us to affirm who our students are, to affirm the different forms of wealth and capital they bring into the classroom. And at the same time, it's a complete disruption to um, to the education system that that is offered to them. So for far too long have we been referencing white middle class folks as like the norm, right? As like, as, as the basis of education, as the uh, threshold for true learning. And culture development pedagogy is all about abandoning that notion and really allowing for folks to see that there is intelligence in every community. Mm -hmm. And we, it's our role as educators to really know where we're teaching yeah. and to really highlight um, highlight the, the, the um, assets in our community, right? And to really show uh, and demonstrate to the folks above or the folks within us that our learning is academic, our learning uh, will give us, our learning has true opportunity for transformation. And I say that because I see the community empowerment and, and our student self-esteem really increase when we provide them with academic opportunities where they learn more about who they are and yeah. where, you know, historically contextualize where they're from, what their parents have been through to get them here. So I really uh, admire the work in culturally relevant pedagogy. I also know that just being a Mexican-American, teaching Mexican-American youth isn't enough. It requires acknowledging my own biases and my own misconceptions about people, about Texas, about you know folks in, in, in housing and things like this. So it's inevitably made me a better person, you know, a better human. And I think culturally relevant pedagogy is rooted in, in, in Aztec philosophy also in this concept of initsli inyotu, which means wise, um, wise face and a wise heart, right? In order for us to build critical eyes, we need to make sure that we build critical hearts and, yeah. and, and that we allow students to know how profound their, their life is, how important they are. And many times when we open books and we don't see ourselves, um, we aren't validated, right? It just further perpetuates this like microaggression, the microaggressions, the microvalidations that we hear in society. And it allows us to feel like we're not good enough. And that's going to transfer over to their academic identity. Yeah. You know, and I want to speak specifically about mathematics. When we teach our students mathematics, we hear names like Pythagoras, Newton, you know, various Greek philosophers so much so that we begin to perpetuate this like deficit, um, indigenous deficit, Mexican-American um, uh, like acquisition of, of math knowledge and no, sir, you know, that's not to me what true education is. That might be schooling, 
um, but it's not education. So Mexican American studies allows for our students to recognize our position and that of our ancestors within American history. Um, again, we've, we've referenced us as being other and apart and at the peripherals and at the margins when truly we were there for every uh, battle, for every um, you know, opportunity for, for uh, betterment. Um, so in San Antonio, and um, it wasn't really until like 2018 uh, where we really started seeing uh, Mexican-American studies implemented at the high school level. And now we have some in the middle school level through electives. And those have been profound. Those have had amazing impacts. And it, they offer students an opportunity to be creative again, to um, tap into their creativity, whether it's with their hands, with their minds, with their ears, um, with their hearts. And I really see ethnic studies and Mexican-American studies uh, solidifying like our identities as people of this land. And I believe that what is to come, what is to come of Mexican-American studies? Shoot, a Mexican-American cabinet, a Mexican-American president, a Mexican-American teachers, uh, Mexican-American artists and philosophers um, who uh, maybe once felt silenced, maybe once felt that they weren't intelligent enough. Myself at the onset of my career, I thought I had to fit this archetype. I thought I had to talk a certain way, dress a certain way. And soon when I was, you know, just began being myself and believing in myself and, and the, in the uh, strengths that I brought, I started really having success. And, and I think that's every human's journey, right? Like once you value yourself and, and affirm yourself, you are, are open for greatness. And Mexican-American studies is so important because race is, is connected to every single thing in our lives, whether some folks agree with it or not, I believe that it is literally, it's, I think about it every second. You know, I don't know how people don't. My race, my ethnicity is always a part of my lens. It's always the way, the framework that I used to view the world. Um, so to understand myself, why I think that way, um, why I, it's okay for me to think that way, really allows me to gain more aspirations and more, um, like self-efficacy and belief in myself and my community. Yeah. And it makes me feel like everything they say about us is wrong. And we're going to. No, that's yeah. I, I, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think the other thing is, as you were talking, Mm -hmm. I think the the thing that really came into my mind was that it also, um, uh, uh, in addition to all those things, it contextualizes the need for resistance because people say oh you know we you know we have to resist and you know we're in resistance and all it but i mean if you don't know any of those other things what's mm. why resist yes great you point know, so i mean that's um well that was your point sister you, well good articulation I'm you sorry. made you made me think that all right um okay co-authors cool there you go <laughs> good way <laughs> <write> to <a> paper <laughs> That's all the time that we have for today. Uh, I want to thank uh, Adriana for being here with us today. Always an honor. Thank you very much. And it's a pleasure to represent my family, my mother, and my community. This is Ernesto Morales, and I want to thank you all for listening to another episode of the uh, Reality Dysfunction.